0: Isaiah chapter 4. Good thing the clock is set to daylight savings time, so I have an extra hour to preach to you. So I hope you're ready. Buckle up. So from Isaiah's vision from chapter 2 through 3 has been one of judgment and despair. Wouldn't we agree? There's a lot of future judgment for the people of Judah. In fact, Isaiah preaches that God will judge a society by giving them wicked rulers, as we saw last week. And Isaiah is warning about what is to come. Yet here we see a glimmer of hope, even in his warnings. So last week, the Lord promised in Isaiah chapter 310, he says, tell the righteous that it will go well for them, for they will eat the fruit of their labor. Isaiah seems to be expanding on the thought more clearly today. So in our passage, we're going to see how does it go right for the righteous? What does that mean? What does that look like? How does God give himself to us? His people. So if you have Isaiah chapter 4 open, turn to verse 2, and we'll be in Isaiah 4, 2 through 6, verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4. On that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Whoever remains in Zion and whoever is left in Jerusalem will be called holy. All in Jerusalem written in the book of life. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood guilt from the heart of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night over the entire site of Mount Zion, and over its assemblies. For there will, there will be a canopy over all the glory, and there will be a shelter for shade from heat by day, and a refuge and shelter from storm and rain. Let's pray. Almighty Father, how marvelous is it that we can come into your presence because of the blood of Christ. Lord we thank you that we can, we can sing in victory, in Christ's victory. how great thou art. We can praise you because of what Christ has done. We are able to sing these songs because of your mercy and your grace upon us. Lord, as we think about worship, we recognize that there are other churches worshiping at the same time. Father, I would like to lift up Christ' community church here in Sierra Vista. Father, I want to lift up Jay, their pastor, as he preaches the word, that it would go forth and cause effect. Father, we pray that his message will be that of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ would be magnified and glorified. Father, I pray that you strengthen their church and spread their influence throughout the city because they want Christ to be known to this community. Father, we pray that Sierra Vista will have a heart change for the gospel. Father, every day in the news we read something horrible that has happened, some some vile deed that some person has done. Father, we pray that you would impact every single one in this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we also pray that we can be vessels in that task, that we can share the glory of who Jesus is to those around us that we can show people how beautiful the name of Christ is. Father, we ask these things and we pray for the understanding of this passage. Help us to know what you're saying in this passage and help us to be edified by it. Help us to grow in strength and and learn to love you more because of this passage. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. We thank you for giving us a building that we can worship you in. We thank you for all the grace and mercy that you have poured out upon our little church. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. So Old Testament prophecy is sort of difficult, isn't it? Have you read Isaiah before and wondered what in the world is going on here? Have you read some of the the passages here and, and questioned what is God trying to say about these things. And they seem so incredible, don't they? Some of these things are, are mind-boggling. In many ways, this is, it's the same as, as you read the book of Revelation, and you wonder what in the world are all these things that are being described here. There's confusion about it. So I'm going to give you just some really fast pointers to helping you understand prophecy. I'm not guaranteeing that you're going to be the next interpreter of prophecy, But what I am going to help you do is learn to appreciate and love Christ more by studying prophecy. So the first thing we need to know is what is the context? What date was it written? Who is the author? What is the audience or the original audience? And what comes before and what comes after? Another way to think about it is horizons, different horizons. The first horizon is is the canonical horizon. That's a fancy word of saying, where in the Bible does this belong? Obviously, the book of Isaiah falls in the prophets. So we know he is prophetic. So that's where he falls. Uh, Something like Genesis falls much more in the history type thing. So that's kind of how you can understand. So you have the canonical. Second, you have something called the covenantal. Where in the covenantal history of Israel is this? So Israel is about to go into exile. So some of this prophecy is going to refer to this upcoming exile. Along with the the, uh, the covenantal is the historical. Where in history is this being written from? Has it been fulfilled in other parts of history? And then finally, we want to look at it from a redemptive perspective. Where is the redemptive story in this? How, how does Christ show up in these passages because Christ over and over again says that what you just read refers to me. He says, you guys are searching the law and the prophets, but you miss me. And so he is chastising the Pharisees for missing this important aspect. So we as Christians want to look at the context. The second thing you want to look at is, or I should say you should expect, is figurative language. Just like you would have in a poem... um, some form of figure or depiction you will have that in prophecy in fact the majority of prophecy is written in poetic form so in your bibles you'll probably have something where it's a little bit narrower indentation in your bibles that's typically pointing to the fact that this isn't in hebrew it is written in a poetic form and that involves parallelism and chiasms and all those fancy words that you can look up later in the dictionary, right? These are things that point to uh, the poetic nature. So you'll expect figurative languages. It's emotive. It's evocative. It's filled with pictures and exaggerated expressions. And so we know that we have to expect that when we read these passages. The second thing is we need to learn to distinguish, or the third thing, sorry, is to distinguish between conditional and unconditional prophecy, Conditional and unconditional prophecy. Remember Jonah? He walked through there and he says, repent because God is going to destroy Nineveh in 40 days. And what happened? God did not destroy Nineveh in 40 days. Why is that? It's because the people repented. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They fasted. They mourned. In fact, even the animals had sackcloth and ashes put on them. Everybody fasted and everybody starved because of their repentance. So, that's conditional, but there are some unconditional things that happen, so you need to know that when studying prophecy. So, that's just the basics, okay? That's just the bottom line. When you see prophecy in Scripture, in order to start to understand it, you want to look at the context, expect figurative language, distinguish between conditional and unconditional. That's just a bottom line, baseline, starting point. So, as we wade through the prophecy of Isaiah... We want to be careful to understand the text. You need to be careful to understand the text. And I hope you have your Bible open as we go through, because that's what's going to really help you understand what I'm talking about. Otherwise, you're going to be very confused. So keep your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, because the first thing we notice is that it says, On that day. And if we are looking at this in context, if we have read chapters 2 and chapters 3, and we see on that day, we need to know what day is talking about. And I think we would cringe a little bit. If you are truly reading this and becoming involved in it, you would cringe. Because every, almost every time it says on that day, what happens? Something bad happens. Something bad happens every time God says on that day. Except for here. In our passage, something good is happening, something positive. In fact, Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah, the hope that he brings to his people. Now, we remember that this is written to a Jewish audience, the people of Judah, but we also recognize something valuable for us, that God is promising that in times of trial, that we can remember his promises, his promises can be remembered. And ultimately, through His promises, He is giving us something. He is giving us Himself. He's giving us Himself through the Messiah. He's giving us Himself through holiness. And He is giving us Himself by actually coming and having His dwelling place be among us. So the three things that you will notice in your outline is that in times of trial, we remember God's promises. The first is God's promised Messiah. The second is God's promised holiness. And the third is God's promised presence. And we see that in our passage. Verse 2 says, on that day, everybody cringes a little bit. What's going to happen? Is he going to hit us with something terrible? No, he gives us the plan of redemption. He's going to save us. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They eat the forbidden fruit. And God is giving judgment. Boom, boom, boom. Man, because you did this, you're going to have to work. Woman, because you did this, you're going to have pain and labor, and it's going to be hard. And then he says something in verse 315. He gives us a glimpse of the promise, the gospel. One day I'm going to raise up from your offspring someone who will smash the head of the serpent, who will stomp it to the ground even though its offspring will be against us. There's a a promise of the gospel here. And so in this passage, he is giving us the plan of redemption by pointing up or pointing to this branch, this Messiah. So now here comes the question. Does this branch of the Lord, who will be beautiful and glorious, is this the Messiah? So we got to do some research, don't we? What does it mean to say the branch of the Lord? Now your Bible may have branch capitalized. Go ahead and check that. If your Bible has branch capitalized, raise your hand. If your Bible does not have branch or has a different word there for branch, capitalized or not capitalized, raise your hand. Okay, so there was an interpretative decision made in your Bible. When it says the branch, right, it's talking about something. So typically most people would recognize we capitalize the anointed one or Something to that nature. So there's a lot of debate about whether this means the Messiah. So look at Isaiah 11.1. We have another branch language very close to Isaiah. Isaiah 11.1. It says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So Isaiah is already pointing to this coming Messiah using the same general language. But not only Isaiah does this, but Jeremiah also. And I'm just going to give you these verses. I'm going to say them to you. Just go ahead um, and write down the reference. But Jeremiah 23.5 says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's decoration When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, my Bible has righteous branch capitalized. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. Again, Jeremiah in thirty-three fifteen says, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to sprout up for David, and he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. What we see is the other prophets are recognizing that this branch will raise up. And so how, why is it that God is raising up a branch? We'll go back just one verse from our chapter 4 verse 1. They said, "Take away our disgrace." Remember that last week the women were crying out, "Take away our disgrace." And we asked the question, "Who takes away disgrace?" Last week in verse in chapter 3, we saw that God judges a nation by removing the leadership. Second, he removes their beauty. And so we have leadership and beauty removed. But then once in chapter or verse two, on that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. God has replaced this wicked rulership with a new leadership. He has replaced the ugliness with a new type of beauty. So we have this branch that is here. And not only that, the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. What we see here is that the branch is going to grow. It's going to start humble, and it will grow in beauty and glory, producing fruit of greater value than what Judah had valued before. Jesus says in John, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Apart from me, you cannot bear much fruit. Jesus sees himself as the branch, the vine, the plant that grows up from the stump. Of Jesse. We see that the fruit of the land here, some translations will capitalize fruit of the land referring back again to this Messiah, that this his nature, his human nature and the reversing of the curse. Remember in Adam his his curse was that he would have to till the land and go and toil to actually have any fruit. What we see here is that this fruit is going to be produced automatically. And I want you to notice something. The reversing of the curse begins in verse at the very end of verse 2. It says, And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Think about that for a minute. What is the pride and glory of Israel's survivors according to this passage? This passage alone. Just try to isolate it in your mind if you can. On that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. The Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ, as we call him in the New Testament, Jesus, as we know him personally, is going to be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Jesus is going to be beautiful and glorious to them. I think this is important that we recognize this, that That their comfort is not going to just be in something else, but it's going to be in Christ. Judah and Jerusalem, who are about to face serious judgment from the Lord, extensive judgment from the Lord, need some comfort. And what does God tell them? The Messiah is coming. There will be a Messiah. In fact, if you read the rest of Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about the Messiah. That's that's why he's called the fifth gospel in many uh, early church circles. He is... Talking about this coming Jesus Christ. And it shows that God will not destroy completely, but will bring trials to purify his people. Now, we could spend some time trying to apply this to our own lives today, but we only have a short amount of time. So I want you to do your homework. What does it mean to have an, a Messiah in times of trouble? What does it mean to have Christ become beautiful and glorious? Also think about this. If you do not see Christ as beautiful and glorious, he may not be your Messiah. You may be holding on to something much more attractive to you. And if something else is more attractive to you than Jesus, then you may have an issue that you need to get looked at, that you need to talk to someone. Why is Jesus not so attractive to me? On this side of the Messiah, we already know he has come. We have already seen his first accomplished works, and we are waiting on that second coming, his return, and we could have even greater joy and comfort. But one practical expectat- uh, expectation, and I want you to jot down this verse: 1 Peter chapter one, five through nine. I just want you to write it down so you can refer to it as you do your homework, as you do your assigned reading. First Peter chapter one, five through nine. I'm going to read it real quick because it ties in with my flow of my sermon. It says you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials. Some people in this room are experiencing various trials. My wife and I are semi-homeless. It's, a, it's our own fault because we're selling our house and buying a new one. But we are semi-homeless. We are living at Grandma's. And we are experiencing a minor trial in that we are all crammed into a smaller room with a baby and a, a one-year-old who likes to scream. So sometimes waking up in the middle of the night is trial. But some of you are experiencing even greater trials. Some of you are experiencing bad medical diagnoses. I don't know if that's the proper way to say it. Diagnosis-ize, diagnoses. You have diagnoses that are terrible, that are bad, that are, 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 are not good. Some people are experiencing chronic pain in this room. So what does it mean to have a faith guarded by God's power for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time? It says, So that the proven character of your faith may more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though now not seeing Him now, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we have Christ, but we are waiting for His return to make all things new. We're waiting for this purification that makes us holy. So remember, God gives us himself through the Messiah, and now he's giving us himself through holiness. Holiness is the next thing, the purification of his people. In times of trial, you can remember that God purifies his people. This is important to know. You need to know this, that God purifies his people. Isaiah is comforting his people in verses 3 and 4. He is saying that God is going to purify you. He's going to call you holy. He's going to set you apart. And who is this people that are set apart? Look at verse 3. Whoever remains in Zion and whoever is left in Jerusalem. Does this, is this a group of people who were able to stay in Zion or Jerusalem because of their own will? Or was it because they were just left over from the scourge of the Babylonians and the Assyrians that come through the land. Whoever is left, the remainder, the the remnant, if you will, in Zion and Jerusalem will be called holy. They'll be called holy. Did you you notice that word? Not that they made themselves holy. Not that they earned themselves some holiness. But God made them holy. God is purifying His people. He is setting apart these people for His purposes. Romans nine twenty seven through 29 says, But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Only the remnant will be saved. Since the Lord will execute His sentence completely and decisively on the earth, And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we would have been made like Gomorrah. Do you notice the legal language being mentioned in here? Called holy. You are determined guilty or innocent. You are called innocent. You are called guilty in a court case. Not that you are necessarily guilty or innocent, but you are called that. There's been a judgment made. So, for example, let's say you murder somebody. You go to the courthouse. The judge rules, and the the jury sits there and deliberates, and finally they come back and they say, we've decided that he is not guilty. Well, did you kill somebody? You killed somebody, but you've been declared not guilty. So that doesn't make you not guilty. It just means legally You're not guilty. And that's what we see here in this passage. These remnant, the remnant left behind, will be called holy. They are set apart for God's magnificent purpose. The second thing we see here is that they will all in Jerusalem written in the book of life. What is this book of life? Well, it's a list of the righteous. Remember Moses in Exodus? He said, God, erase me from the book of life because I want these people to survive. He didn't want God to destroy the Israelites at that time. And God was saying, you know, I, I write what I write and, and don't you know, don't challenge who I've put in the book of life. But we see it kind of expanded in the New Testament. It's really a, a heavenly ledger. We see that it's a, a list of, of heavenly citizens, those who belong in the citizenship of heaven. Look, Luke 2.20 Says that he, God, or Jesus says to the disciples, Rejoice because your names are written in the book of life. Revelation 3.5 talks about the book of life, those written in the book of life. And so we see that it's a heavenly ledger, those who belong in God's heavenly kingdom, His citizenship. And so how does this happen? How does God call them holy? How does God say that these people in Jerusalem, this remnant, those left behind here in this passage, how are, they, how are they made to be in the book of life? Verse 4 tells us, he says, When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood guilt from the heart of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Judgment on a large scale, we see that he is going to use it to separate the righteous and the unrighteous at some point. But on a small individual scale, we could see this more like a testing or a refining or a purifying. So individually, we endure trials. We endure trials for a reason. Those of us who are Christians are going to endure trials. It's been promised. In fact, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your death equipment. Take up your guillotine. Take up the thing that will execute you And follow me, he says. Die to yourself. So we are going to experience trials on an individual scale. I like how James puts it. He says, blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? That's a good question to ask yourself. And so in the same way, the spirit of judgment, they have a spirit of burning And you could say that this is maybe an expansion on the concept. Not that there are two spirits, but one idea, a burning fine metal. Remember, he promised never to flood the earth again, but he did not promise not to burn it all to bits. And so we have a spirit of burning. God's judgment is a purifying judgment. So the question you want to ask yourself is what purpose for us Christians, what is the purpose of judgment or should I say trials or hardship for you and for me. Well, it's for our holiness. The trials that you are experiencing, the losses that you have faced, are all for your holiness, to make you more like Christ. Romans eight twenty eight through 29 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined, and here's the reason, to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The whole purpose of our trials is for our holiness. The whole purpose or a major purpose of Christ's death and resurrection, his trial was for our holiness, to make us holy. God uses evil for good. You may be experiencing something evil in your life. Someone has done something wrong to you something vile to you we look at joseph and what does joseph tell his brothers what you planned for evil god planned for good we see that god overrules all evil that happens he uses it for good so as christians i want you to get this point you are not being judged for your sins as a christian you are not being judged for your sins but for the purpose of your sanctification. God already judged us in Jesus Christ so that the trials that you are experiencing now are not punitive, they are restorative. The trials that you are experiencing now today, if you are a Christian, make make note of that, if you are in Christ, are not punitive because our punishment falls on Jesus Christ. The sins you're going to do today, the sins you're going to do tomorrow, all fall, the punishment for them fall on Jesus Christ. They are not punitive. They are restorative. They are to make you more like Christ. Now, our trials can be a consequence of our actions, but more often than not, we need to learn from them. We can make bad decisions and experience pain and suffering for our decisions recognize that God gives himself through the Messiah making us holy and finally by being with us 5 through 6 we see that God's presence with his people 5 verse 5 says then the lord will create a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night does that sound familiar to anybody who here does? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, who here doesn't know their Bible good enough to know what this is? No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm being mean. A fire by by night and smoke by day. That reminds us of the Exodus, doesn't it? God is you or Isaiah is using salvation language because that's the biggest thing that's happened to Israel was the salvation from Egypt that they were saved from Egypt and they were given this promised land. That they lay in. So God is is using this language of Old Testament um, Exodus and freedom, this salvation, this mighty work of God. The mighty work that God did is even mightier. He said something bigger is coming. Look at verse five. It says that smoke, that flame, will be over the entire site of Mount Zion and over its assemblies. Notice the language: the entire site of Mount Zion. And the assemblies. So not just one little spot, as it was in Exodus, right over the little tabernacle. I say little because the temple was bigger, right? And, and so it was one spot. God's presence was in one location with the people. Now it's going to cover the people. Now remember what I said about figurative language. Smoke and fire would be really hard to live under, I would think, if it was really happening. So just recognize this is this is language about God's presence. His presence will be with His people. A greater presence. And then at the end of verse 5, it says something kind of strange. It says, for there will be a canopy over all the glory. Or your passage may say, for glory will be a canopy over all. This word for canopy is very interesting. It is the same word that they use when they talk about a wedding um, covering, uh, <clears throat> where they would build a facility for their wedding that would cover their wedding ceremony. They would put branches and it would, it would be above the whole wedding area. And so this canopy, kind of like a tent with no walls, this covering was made for weddings. So God is, is essentially saying there will be a wedding over all the glory, or a glory, glorious wedding will be here. Where is the last place that we've heard about wedding language when it comes to God and to Christ? The marriage supper of the Lamb, right? We've, we've heard that before. So we have, once again, the same end times, end of days language being described here. God's presence will be His people. It will be a glorious time. It will be a celebration. It will be like a wedding. It's going to have a, 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 joy, a joyful experience. And then verse six, and there will be a shelter for shade from heat by day and a refuge and shelter from storm and rain. This language here is that of protection. God is going to not only be with his people, but protect his people. Nothing can separate us from God at this point in this passage. So what we see is that God's presence is going to be with his people. So the great hope of Isaiah is this coming Messiah. This this language of God with us. So let's take an informal poll. Who here has already begun to listen to Christmas music? Go ahead and raise your hands. I want to see the guilty. Hide the guilty and the innocent. Who here has put up their Christmas trees? Who here has put up Christmas decorations? So I've been listening to Christmas music for the last two years because I have been ready for Christmas. I want Christmas to come because I'm so tired of all the silliness that this world has. And what does that mean, this Christmas idea that's coming? This Emmanuel. What's the song that we like to sing? O come, O come, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And what do we see in this passage? This coming Messiah, that God will be with His people. We see that the God of the universe is with us in Christ Jesus. Christ is fully God come in human flesh. You know, this should provide us with immense comfort today. Not tomorrow, not next year, not if the politicians get their act together and do this or do that. Not if our, our doctor finally gets around to calling us back about that serious medical issue that we have that we can have God with us today because of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 gives me this comfort. It says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets, which is what we see in Isaiah, at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him the heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Remember that glory language? That the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious? It's through His power. He is sustaining all things by His powerful word. After making purification for sins, recognize that language, He sat down at the right hand of of the majesty on high. So God gives Himself to us. Through the Messiah, making us holy, and finally being with us. What we can see in Isaiah is that God's plan of salvation is unfolding. To the people of Judah, this remains a future event. They see a future possibility, a future hope, and they're seeing it dimly, right? We see that in Hebrews and in 1 Peter, looking ahead. Looking for this Jesus. And all the and all the Pharisees at the time of Jesus were looking in the scriptures, trying to see who is this Messiah that's coming? When will he come? And when Jesus said, I'm gonna be taken away, what did the people say? Well, well, God or well, Jesus, you the, the scriptures say that the Messiah will remain with us forever. Where are you going? Why are you leaving? Then who is the Messiah? If you're leaving, you can't be the Messiah. And what did Jesus say? He's like, No, I'm the Messiah. You just don't understand the scriptures. You don't see what this is about. So what we see is that God unfolds His plan of salvation to Isaiah, and it's um, and for the people of Judah they don't see it as clearly, right? It's kind of like looking through um, looking at a mirror that's really fuzzy. They're not quite seeing clearly, and so God unfolds salvation. You know, it's kind of like God knows we needed that reminder today. I don't know who here needed the reminder that we have a Messiah. Who here needed a reminder that the trials that we go through is for our restorative purposes, to make us more holy, to make us more like that Messiah. And we have God's presence with us today. You don't have to wait until you die to enjoy this eternal life. You can begin right away. You can celebrate, and look at this Jesus. Look how beautiful and glorious he is going to be. My hope for you, and actually my hope for our church, is that we will look in scriptures and see how beautiful and glorious Jesus is. Because the more beauty and glorious uh, nature of Jesus that we see, the less the things of this world will have their hooks in us. They will not be able to bait us with false Idols and false hopes and you will find true hope and happiness in jesus christ as you read scripture Uh, Let's go ahead and close in prayer Father we thank you for your word. What a powerful truth of The gospel that we see that jesus christ is god Who has come for us that he has died for us that we can get to know him and enjoy him and celebrate him and have uh, wonderful communion today with God our Father. Lord, just as our psalm this morning, 27, 1 through 6, talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord. Lord, we don't have to dwell in the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is dwelling with us. God, we are so enraptured by the truth of this passage that Jesus Christ came for us to make us holy so that we can see God's face through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for our congregation that they would see this truth, that they would celebrate and have joy in the truth. Father, we thank you for your redemptive plan throughout salvation. We, we know that you have a plan for our redemption. We thank you for this passage that speaks so clearly on the matter that we don't have to question, but we can celebrate the truth that this Messiah is God with us Lord we thank you for your mercy We thank you for your grace Lord be with us as we go about our week strengthen those uh, who are struggling Lord I pray for um, the one Ashley who is, is having a baby today Lord I pray for the uh, safe and um, healthy baby in a process Lord be with the parents and grandparents and everyone around as they uh, expectantly wait on this child just as we uh, are excited to celebrate Christmas and um, remember that God is with us, Emmanuel. And all these things we ask in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.